Hey everyone, it's All Things Climbing, hosted by Dave Alley. This is Luke. I am Dave's younger, brighter, better brother, and I produce the show. You're hearing my sultry voice right now instead of Dave's because he's busy trying to get unstuck from a Chinese finger trap. Recently, Dave talked to pro climber Jonathan Segrist, aka J-Star. Jonathan has climbed 515s and a ton of 514s, both sport and track. But also, he's interested in the climbing community as a whole, so we knew we had to talk to him. Jonathan's also just a great conversationalist. So today, you're hearing the first half of their conversation. Among many things, they talk about Jonathan's background, how he wound up living in Vegas, their favorite crags, and the next generation of climbers. I will spare you the first 10 minutes of them complaining about Skype and technology, and we're just going to jump to where the conversation turned to climbing. So, here it is. And so forth. You know, I have this theory that every... Every climber's origin story is kind of the same where their friend takes them out or they go to the gym and they're just like immediately hooked by the sport. But right. then, you know, for that's like that's I think that's that's really good at, at telling you like what the hook is, like why climbing grabs people. But but that doesn't necessarily, I think, offer the full explanation of how climbing then like metastasizes into this lifestyle obsession where people like sell their clothes and like live in their cars and and that kind of thing. And, and I think that part yeah. of the reason why climbing really makes that jump is that you know, you, you show up and you get into the climbing for the athleticism or for, um, you know, the mind control or the challenge or whatever. But oftentimes I think that people stay because in service of climbing, you go to these campgrounds and you travel around and you meet like really awesome, pretty fun people. And, you know, you have these cool conversations and stuff. And, you know, most of them, I'd say like at least half of my best memories from climbing are at like the campsite afterwards and not necessarily like on the pitch. Um, yeah. And, no, and, and there's yeah. a lot to that, I think. So, yeah. I mean, for me, you know, most of these days when I go out and I'm trying my hardest project or, or, you know, I'm trying to, you know, climb my absolute best, the climbing itself isn't really, I wouldn't like, you know, fun wouldn't be like the first word that I would categorize it as, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, it's more about like the, um, kind of feeling a sense of purpose. And, uh, you know, I think that we all live a better life by being challenged in one way or another. And I think that, um, climbing is just an excellent challenge and it, and what comes along with it is an amazing community and, uh, you know, a vehicle for travel and mm-hmm. a, a way to kind of understand the world around you. And, and those things have much more value than the moment, you know, you've tried your absolute hardest or something like that. Yeah. Like it's at least certainly that stuff seems like it's going to last the longest, right? Like I'll, totally. I'll carry yeah. that stuff probably later into my life. Like once I've kind of hung up my climbing shoes and, um, yeah, and doing totally. that stuff. like somehow I didn't even really set out for this to be the case, but somehow I've arrived at this point in my life where like half of my social universe is climbers, you know, and it's, yeah. it's not like you go out with the intention of stacking the ranks of your friends with other climbers, but that sort of the fact that that ha- happens on its own, I think, um, I think reflects well of the community and the, the quality of the community. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I've been giving that, uh, quite a bit of thought recently because I went to high school in Boulder, Colorado. Um, and I didn't, I knew of climbing through my father, but I didn't climb myself really outside of like the occasional day outside. Yeah all through middle school and high school. And I bonded with a group of people, a group of boys that, um, you know, during those formative years where I feel like you're just so susceptible to making these awesome, super strong bonds with people. And mm-hmm. we were mostly into skateboarding and to like, you know, yeah. partying and doing all those things. And they're 
exceptionally good friends of mine, even to this day. Yeah. Um, but you know, I always just imagined those guys and, and by all means they are still like some of my best friends, but I always imagined those guys being like, you know, if I ever got married, they're the only ones who I'd ever consider as like my best men or whatever. Yeah. Not that I have a traditional wedding, but sure. like that's kind of, but now I've noticed more recently in these last couple of years that my, I mean, 99% of my, I mean, that's maybe even understating it. Maybe more than 99% of my friend group is just from climbing. Yeah. And very few of those people are professional climbers, right. but you know, a lot of them are industry people or, or people who have worked in the climbing industry in one capacity or another. And I think it's just because for my life, I tend to see those people repeatedly, um, uh, you know, almost serendipitously and, yeah. And then, you know, we just form bonds and we have more and more experience together. And now most of my friends and most of the people that I call really close friends are, are climbers. And, and that's just interesting to me because for a long time, even while I was a climber, even while I was quite a good climber, still my best friends were not climbers. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really changed in the last couple of years for me, which is fine because I love all the people that I spend time with. But yeah, but I, I did, that is interesting. It does speak quite a bit to, you know, I don't know how many people that go to the to do have other activities or avid interests can say that 99% of their friend base is, you know, came from that interest. Right. Absolutely. You know, I, um, I guess before coming to work in the outdoor sports industry, I was in, I was an engineer for a, a bunch of years. And then, uh, before that I worked in, in restaurants and hospitality for a long time. And, you know, I have, mm -hmm. I have really dear friends from both of those industries, but not, um, you know, not ones that you necessarily share like a, a deep lifestyle passion with, if that makes sense. And, yeah. And, and climbing, climbing really, really adds, adds that. And, and I think that there's a real, you know, it makes it so hard to put down because it, it really just has its claws in like all different parts of your life. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I guess, uh, this is a little bit of a trite question, but I think, you know, it kind of it, 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 it's revealing and it's an interesting thought exercise, I think. And so I like asking it, but do you, yeah. can you put your finger exactly on, on why climbing was the thing that you were grabbed by? Um, you know, it's, it's difficult mostly because my relationship to climbing has changed and evolved so much since I began. Yeah. Uh, I'm 32 now and I started climbing when I was 18 and I think at the time when I started climbing, I I want to say that it was largely, I mean, the challenge of it was important and I was definitely really motivated and dedicated to climbing right away. I, I mean, I remember for the first three or four years of my climbing, I think I, you know, maybe had one rest day a week, but it was probably more like once every two weeks or something. And then that was mostly because I was aspiring to improve as a climber. And I thought that the best way was just to, you know, hammer myself in the gym constantly yeah. or hammer myself outside at Flagstaff mountain or wherever it was. Mm -hmm. But I think that like in the very Genesis of my personal interest for climbing, um, it was because of a sense of camaraderie. Like, I think it was really because of, I met these people. I, I started climbing right when I started going to Naropa university in Boulder, Colorado. Sure, and yeah. I, there were a couple people in my orientation that were like wearing climbing, you know, prana or, you know, pusher t-shirts or whatever it was. And I was kind of like, Oh, like I know a little bit about climbing. Like 
maybe these are my people kind of thing. And I, I think <laughs> yeah. it was, I think it was mostly, yeah, like really thinking critically about it. I think it was mostly an identity thing, like finding the group of people that I wanted to settle in with. And yeah. I think it was also, yeah, just that sense of having a community, like being at home with, with a certain group of people. And it was certainly like immediately like that. I mean, you know, there were four or five of us that had three days previous had never met. And then suddenly we were like best friends and we all like were going out bouldering every day after class or whatever. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's, I mean, that's, that's awesome. I feel, I feel very much like that, um, for myself as well. Yeah. So back, keeping in within that same, like, you know, early career time frame, how did you come about the nickname J star? Yeah. So, um, so I started climbing in, uh, 2004. That's when I, that's when I started college at Naropa. <clears throat> and, um, at that time, the, uh, the spot climbing gym had just opened more or less. I think they opened like a year or two previous and, and they were like one of the first, like all bouldering gyms in the country. And I spent a lot of time there, but then I eventually moved on to the Boulder rock club because, um, I think I had some kind of a family discount cause my dad was, uh, going there cause he was mostly climbing roots. So we started going to the Boulder rock club together. And like I said, I basically just wanted everything to do with climbing. I mean, like most people describe their initial experience like this as well, but I just, you know, I wanted to climb all the time. I wanted to learn about the areas I like read guidebooks cover to cover, you know, like I was totally obsessed. And yeah. so when I saw that like root setting was a thing, I knew like, oh, I have to do this. I have to be a root setter. And so I eventually, um, after, uh, kind of begging and pleading with the head root setter at the time, Charlie Boas, I eventually got a job as a root setter at the Boulder rock club. And Justin Shong had been like a really well-established root setter there for many years. And he was a well-established member of the community. So he was signing his roots as JS and those are my initials as well. So, <laughs> yeah. um, basically when they hired me, you know, it was just like, yeah, well you can't be JS. So what are you going to be? So I was like, oh shit, well, I guess I'll just be J. And originally I wrote J and then an asterisk next to it. Yeah. Um, and then that just eventually like after a few months that evolved into a star and then, and then, yeah, basically for, for <laughs> the first hilarious. like several years, yeah, for the first several years, it was only like my root setting buddies that would like call me J star, like kind of jokingly. Yeah. Uh, and then it just like caught on. And <laughs> I mean, I've actually, I've, I've talked about this before and I've thought about this a bunch, but you know, like in retrospect, you know, I like, it was cool at the time. It was something that <laughs> when you're like in 19, you know, but like as a joke, but like now, you know, when I have, when there's like people at the cliff who I've never met and who have never met me who are like calling me J star before they call me like by my, by yes. my actual name, you know, I'm kind of like, Oh man, maybe that was a huge mistake. That's so funny. <laughs> I mean, you really never, I mean, that's kind of the crux of it, right? You never know what what's going to be the thing that just like latches on and follows you to the grave. <laughs> totally. Totally. man. but you know, all things, all things considered, I mean, there are much worse things to be, be known by than having like a cheesy nickname. So I, I try and own it. And, uh, and yeah, I mean the only, the only line that I never cross is, um, my girlfriend, not that she'd ever want to, but she's not allowed to call me J star. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Do you... I don't think she, I think she, she would much 
let, I, I think she, that's mostly her impetus, but I, I totally agree with it. <laughs> that's hilarious. So is it fair to say you don't go introducing yourself as J-Star to people at the I, crack? I don't think I've ever <laughs> introduced myself as J-Star, no. <laughs> that's, oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I was, I was, I've always been curious about that. Yeah, totally. No, I think um, I like telling the story because it kind of, uh, it kind of, you know, releases a bit of guilt. Because Absolutely. there's actually a good reason for me to have the name as opposed to just being like, what would be an awesome nickname? Yeah, for totally. Oh, yeah. I know. It, it, it definitely. Um, yeah. It, it The story, I mean, clears your name from any accusation of like self-choosing your own nickname or, you know, any, all that stuff is like blatantly against the rules. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> <totally>. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, so so at this point, you you were in Boulder for a long time, but you now live in Vegas. Is that right? Yeah, so I wasn't. I, I was in Boulder in the capacity that my parents live in South Boulder, pretty near to El Dorado Canyon. Cool. And um, I lived in their house when I went to uh, middle school and high school in Boulder, and then I moved out when I went to to Naropa University, and then um, basically since 2011, I had been on the road, either in my truck or, um, then more recently, as I had a little bit more money, I was going over to Europe for four or five months of the year, but I would always return to my parents' house in between trips. So it was kind of like, a, I, I never, I didn't really describe it as I lived in Boulder because I'd normally spend less than two months or two and a half months of the year there. Right. Um, but it was definitely like the place, you know, where all my things were and where your mail's you know, accumulating on a table. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but no, this is kind of a big move for me because I've been coming to Las Vegas, um, for the last seven winters mm. and just normally I would spend like new year's Eve through the red rock rendezvous, which is like end of March through here in Las Vegas. Yeah. And I totally grew to love this place. And then, um, yeah, just recently I moved here like somewhat permanently. I mean, I, I, you know, this is the first lease I've signed in 11 years. So I, for me, it's like kind of a big deal. So I'm That's actually good. in a house. Yeah. We've got two roommates who are awesome and we've got this great little house and, um, and for now, yeah, it feels really good. I haven't like, you know, bought furniture or, uh, you know, had my clothes hanging on clothes hangers for a really long time. So this is definitely like a pretty cool step forward. At least it feels pretty good for the meantime. So, yeah. And you have to, I mean, it just alleviates so much, so much mental strain that it that can accumulate, I guess, when you're on the road, at least for me, I mean, you know, the totally. everything, every time you pick up anything that's no matter how small you have to have this conversation, like, well, do I absolutely need this? Cause I don't have room in my truck. For <laughs> totally. It or, Oh, totally. <clears throat> you know, it's like, well, okay, I don't need to like decide whether to throw this t-shirt out today or not or. Right. You know. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. That, that part of it's really nice. And then I think, you know, um, I still love the concept of being in the truck and like kind of being totally mobile and that type of lifestyle will always totally enthrall me. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I'll miss it. And I, you know, not to say that I won't still do it. I mean, we were planning a three month road trip this summer to get out of here during the heat, et cetera. Yeah. But, um, but you know, there's not, it doesn't have the same allure for me because like, quite honestly, I've visited almost all of the areas in the U S that I want to go to. Um, there's a few random ones left on my list and there are some that I definitely like to revisit, but Mm. it's just kind of, you know, as my career and my life evolves, it seems a little bit smarter to have us a, a room somewhere and a helm and then 
you know, fly and do shorter trips and have the stability to be able to train whenever I want to. And, you know, have a little bit more of like a, um, uh, reliable friend group as opposed to that, like kind of rotating, you know, musical chairs of random friends yeah. that you pick up along the road, which is so <laughs> awesome. But, um, it's also pretty nice to be like, Hey, can you take care of my dog? Or, yeah. you know, Oh, what, what night are we going over to your guys' place or whatever? So it's cool. It's a cool little like life evolution for me. And, um, right now I'm definitely really psyched to be here and, and psyched to see how things turn out for the next few months. That's awesome. Um, you know, obviously Vegas is, is such a Mecca for climbing in the U S and, you know, I, I think sometimes people underappreciate it, but if you are into rock climbing specifically, it might be the best city in America to live in for access. I guess, especially so if you enjoy like multi-pitch climbing or trad climbing, yeah. but, um, but yeah, the, I mean, the climbing there is obviously just, just insane, but I was, I was curious what your experience has been like, uh, with living in the city beyond the climbing, you know, like how's, how do you, how do you find the, the Vegas metropolitan area as a place to live? And, you know, what's the music scene like? And, you know, I guess like all the yeah. attendant issues of, of being out there outside of the rock. Yeah, totally. Um, I, I love it. I totally love it. And I've, I mean, I've traveled quite a bit in my life you know, I don't have a ton of experience with cities. You know, I've been through a number of cities in Europe and in the United States from time to time, but I haven't spent a lot of time in cities other than like Denver, Salt Lake, Seattle. Um, you know, those are the main ones in the U.S. that I've spent time in other than, you know, going to San Fran for a week or whatever. Yeah. And then New York and L.A. and whatever. But um, what I really like about Las Vegas is that uh, the group of people living here is really diverse, both ethnically, mm. racially, but furthermore, there's a clear kind of, um, socioeconomic diversity. And there's also a surprisingly high number of people of, uh, foreign people living here, mm. um, both, uh, East Asian, um, South Asian, uh, like quite a few, you know, Latin American people and actually a lot of European people too, because I think they get kind of sucked in by, um, and you know, this is generalization, but I think a lot of people, you know, come here for Las Vegas, the tourist destination, and yep. then they maybe realize, Oh, cost of living here is really great. Um, the quality of life here is pretty damn awesome, especially considering the cost of living. And then furthermore, you know, there's like, a ridiculous amount of stable, sunny days. Yeah. So, you know, I think it attracts a lot of people in the same way that like Florida might, but, um, they tend to be, it tends to be a little bit more worldly. And I think it just has something to do with, you know, I can't exactly put my finger on it, but I think it has something to do with the, uh, the availability of jobs and, and, um, you know, mm -hmm that kind of thing around here. But so in that sense, like it definitely feels like, and I know this is such a strange statement and most people who don't understand Vegas very well will probably totally like laugh at this, but it feels like the real world. Like it's pretty cool when, yeah. you, when you actually get into the neighborhoods here, you're like, Oh, you know, I mean, from coming from a person that grew up in Boulder, Colorado, it's definitely like a breath of fresh air. You know, it's definitely like, right. There's people of all types here and everyone's super nice. And, um, it's just a cool community. I, I mean, I like going to the grocery store and seeing like the weirdos and seeing like the, the, like all the funky different groups of people, you know, I like being surrounded and kind of being stimulated in that way. And, and I think that for a place to live, 
that kind of stimulation for me is really important because I've gotten used to the stimulation of always traveling and always moving and always being around a new group of people in a new uh, physical environment. And so to be able to, you know, go downtown or, you know, stay in Summerlin where I live and just be surrounded by kind of a bit more of a funky group of people is, is stimulating and I love it and I totally am into it. That's really interesting. It's so funny. I guess it's a little bit ironic to, to make the case for Vegas that it's real attractive qualities that it's so authentic in a way, right. you know, because yeah, like yeah. that's totally not totally. the case if you're just looking at Vegas, the facade, but, yeah, um, God, it is such a full flavor city. That's, totally. that's for sure yeah. the case. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the food is amazing. Um, you know, there's, amazing. there's fun stuff to do. Yeah. It's sick. There are, I mean, I guess, yeah, I, I can't, I can't put a different word to it than what you were just describing, but it's, it, there are a lot of real people there for sure. Yeah, definitely. And it, it feels really, you know, and I think it, I think it was kind of interesting to me because my, my girlfriend's from Atlanta and she grew up there. Um, and it, despite the fact that she grew up mostly outside of the city in the suburbs, I mean, Atlanta's still, you know, 50 to 60% African-American, depending on like how you exactly you, you look at the demographics. But, you know, when she came to hang out in Boulder, I mean, obviously right away, she noticed how, um, how overwhelmingly Caucasian the city was, but furthermore, you know, I think that when she made the transition to Vegas, she just noticed like there's very little like pretension here. Like you don't necessarily feel like I'm sure that in some circles it's different. I'm sure that, you know, if you get into like the luxury real estate or like the, yeah. you know, whatever, there's like a ton of pretentious people. But in general, it's like there's no sense of having to live up to anyone else's values. Like you can like wear whatever you want, you can be whatever you want. And, you know, I think that really comes along with a larger city in general, but mm. even still at the time that I've spent in New York or the time that I've spent in LA, there's very much a sense of like, like, you know, I only talk to you and like kind of respect your space or your opinion if you meet this certain category of person. And yeah. Here, it's not like that at all. I mean, you can do or be like whoever you want. You can be like a complete kook and just be like (laughs) another person in the grocery store, which I think is super cool. And I think that's why more and more climbers are really catching on because, I mean, nobody cares at all if you're covered in chalk. I mean, even if you're in the Whole Foods, which is overwhelmed, it's in like one of the richer neighborhoods in Vegas, the one on West Charleston. Is that guy Summerlin? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, even if you're there and you're surrounded by people head to toe in Louis Vuitton who have like a little, (laughs) little dog in their backpack thing, they're, they like don't care about like standing next to you in line, even if you're covered in chalk and you've got like your, your ripped up, you know, Arcteryx jacket on or whatever, like they, they're like totally into it. So yeah, I imagine they're not phased by much after living in that city for a long time. No, no, definitely not. Do you think that the the average person in Vegas is sort of aware that there is like a devoted outdoor contingent or is, is there is that sort of under the radar? Um, it's hard to say. And, you know, I have been thinking a lot recently about how I feel like the city of Las Vegas could really capitalize a lot more on the um, like kind of tourist opportunities that they have being so close to so much wilderness, you know, and in the same breath, I'm like, Oh man, well the lines getting into red rock are already horrendous and, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe, maybe not promote that kind of thing. But, um, it, it, it's a really interesting question because 
no one really knows that there's so – I mean even climbers don't know. know how much climbing there is Dude, here. Dude, that is so true. Yeah. I mean no, nobody has – I the first year that I came here, I actually wrote an article for – I don't remember if it was for Urban Climber or for Climbing. But I was basically just kind of talking about how shocked I was personally, you know, I was pretty tuned into the climbing scene given this was like in 2011 or whatever, but I was still like, Oh man. I mean, I knew that red rocks was here, but I had no idea that there were 25 limestone crags within an hour drive, you know, yeah. or more for that matter. No um, kidding. and even though the climbing community here has grown dramatically in the last five or six years, um, and even though there are new gyms opening up and even though there is maybe a little bit more of attention being paid to these areas, I still think that the um, the resource and like wealth of of uh, wilderness and and outdoor activities that are here is really undervalued. And um, you know, I think that there's a benefit to to that being a little bit better understood. Um, sure, I mean that we'll stuff see, is too good you know? not to share in a way. You know? Yeah, and yeah. Um, you know, I think that one of the main speaking of Vegas being underappreciated, I think that. One of the best things about it is that, you know, you mentioned all these limestone crags being so close and and some of them are are really, really great limestone crags that maybe most climbers will never hear about until they either start climbing harder um, routes themselves or they start associating with climbers who who are climbing more challenging routes. And I'm thinking, I guess, yeah. this is a good example of like the Virgin River Gorge. Yeah. Where, yeah, totally. you know, if you're like a five, eight, five, nine climber, you, you probably just, you're probably never going to hear about this crag. Um, but yeah. people start talking about it like a lot once you and your friends maybe start breaking into like, you know, the, the upper grades, like 12s or 13s or so forth. Totally. Yeah. But yeah. then, I mean, that's like, that stuff's kind of neat because you can have this area reinvent itself around you as you progress. And then, you know, the opposite side of that coin is that I think that Red Rocks is maybe the funnest place to climb in the entire country when you factor in how fun it can be to climb routes that are like so far beneath your ability level. Um, you know, there's yeah. a lot of places where I, I'll go and if I'm climbing something that's like five, five or five, six, it's like, okay, this is maybe like a little boring. Cause you're just kind of like you're ledge hopping or, you know, doing something that's right. not particularly interesting, but Vegas, Red Rocks in particular, and then, you know, I don't know, maybe like El Dorado outside of Boulder or the Flatirons or, or maybe the Gunks, I guess, or you know, the three places where you can go and be like, I'm going right. to climb like five, six today and it's going to be super, super so, fun. Yeah. Yeah. That's hard no, to find. I we agree with that. And I agree that it's really hard to find. Um, and, and you nailed it with the Flatirons. I've always thought that the Flatirons were absolutely incredible. I mean, it's not that frequent that if I'm climbing something five, nine, even and under that I'm like, you know, I, I'm like, wow, this is great. You know, yeah, but exactly. Exactly. I've had that experience certainly in Vegas. I've had that experience a little bit in Smith rock too, actually. Oh, cool. Um, and, and certainly in the flat irons as well. I've never been to the gunks, but God, I would love to go there. Yeah. Is that, is that on, you mentioned a second ago, like having a handful of places left that you still have to tick off. Is that sort of top of that list? The gunks? Gunks is very high on that list. Yeah, I've only done one trip to the Northeast, and I just mostly spent my time at um, Rumney and yeah. then a little bit at the uh, Western Massachusetts Crags. Okay, yeah, and, Crow Hill um, or whatever. I, 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 I didn't get to the Gunks, but, I, man, I would love to. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, there's a, there's definitely a handful of crags left that, you know, when I tell people I've never been there, they're kind of like, no way. Yep. Uh -huh. <laughs> but um, That's just I so many, man. I mean, this yeah, is a big country. Yeah. 
Yeah, totally. It is a big country. And, and, you know, it's interesting what you said about the limestone crags here, because, you know, if you were a climber reading magazines in the nineties, then you would be under the impression that Vegas was the Mecca and you would be very well aware of the Virgin River Gorge or Mount Charleston or, you know, all these other in-between crags, some of which are even like within Las Vegas city limits. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of, you know, it's, it's interesting how crags just kind of like have their, just have these, this ebb and flow of popularity. And like, you know, I've seen that happen a little bit with rifle. I've seen that happen a little yeah. bit with like certainly areas like Smith rock right. where like the style is a little older and old school and stuff like that. But um, the Red River Gorge, maybe to some extent, to some extent, totally the Red River Gorge. Yeah. I mean, when, you know, it's, it's still quite popular, but I mean, mm-hmm. man, I remember like, um, you know, five or six, seven years ago. And certainly after the rock trip there, the Petzl rock trip, it was like insane how many, I mean, you couldn't get through a cl- conversation about climbing without talking about the red. Yeah, it's true. And I think, you know, certainly those areas definitely benefited from having their time as, they, they like enjoyed this this period of notoriety for being where all of the hardest climbs in the country were being put up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and so obviously for a long time, you know, with like chain reaction going up at Smith Rock and then, you know, the first 514A, the country going up there as well. Like there was a there was a yeah. period where if if you were if you were climbing hard, that's where you were going. Totally. And yeah. um yeah. you know, no longer the case because there's so there's hard routes all over the country now. But yeah. Um but yeah, so you know, it's it, it is weird how there's there's such a there's such an ebb and flow to that stuff and you know, yeah. rise and fall. Totally. Yeah. Um how do you speaking of like those pl- things going in in places all over the country, how do you how does the process of picking goals and projects for you changed over time? Um, um yeah, it it has changed over time. Um I think, um, you know, when I was first like, you know, quote unquote coming onto the scene or, you know, I don't know, however you want to describe it. Basically when I was first aspiring to become a professional climber, I felt it really important to, uh, kind of walk through all the rites of passages, if you will. And, um, for me, for probably like years 2010 through 2012 or 13, my primary obsession was basically quite simply to like look at the mags in the nineties and kind of look at all the older, um, headlines and look at all the older guidebooks and stuff and, uh, really focus my energy on doing you know, what maybe weren't the current hardest routes in the country, but like, you know, what were the hardest routes in the country? Yeah. Um, kind of the first hardest routes in the country, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I'm not necessarily speaking so much about, you know, um, like Genesis 1979 Genesis in, uh, El Dorado Canyon. Right. I'm more talking about like that, that generation between like kind of when, basically the generation, the the first generation of really difficult sport climbing. So, you know, names like, um, Jim Carn and, uh, Jason Campbell and Chris Sharma and Boonsby yeah. and, um, Randy Levitt and, you know, that kind of like 
era and that generation. So um, for me back then, it was really important to spend time at Smith Rock. It was really important to spend time at the Virgin River Gorge. Um, it was important to go to Mount Charleston. It was important to go, you know, around some of the uh, like rifle and areas like that. Is part of the attraction to those types of routes or, you know, following in, in those footsteps that you you have the benefit of, I guess, you're, you have some assurance of quality because you have these people coming before you and, and, and maybe being discriminating about what they decided to spend their time and bolt and, and project and so forth? Or is it, you know, do you get like a, a confidence thing out of it, I, I suppose? Like, okay, now I'm ready to try this harder stuff because I, you know, I went and did these sort of like requisite hard 13s, then low 14s, then mid 14s and right on. <clears throat> you know, I never thought about the quality aspect of it, although that is totally that does apply because when you have, you know, an entire area or, you know, the, all of the country to spend your time and energy doing root development and you choose to do these things first, it, it normally is an indication that those are some of the best things available. Um, yeah. But I, I really think that mainly it was just this. um I've always been really basically I've always been it's always been the the of chief importance to me was respect from my peer group. Yeah. Um much more so and even to this day much more so than having quote unquote fans or than um you know just strictly sticking to a number etc like the thing that matters the most to me um is I want my peers in the climbing community and uh, those around me, you know, that I respect to like, you know, in return, respect me and respect the things that I've chosen to spend my time on and the things that I've chosen to dedicate energy towards. Hmm. And I guess I just, um, and I'm not sure exactly where this sentiment came from, but I just, have always had a greater appreciation for like the first of a grade or for, yeah. you know, the roots that, um, that maybe represented the, uh, the life's work of an incredible climber like Boone speed or, mm. you know, you know, the, the people who I guess, and, my, and these are the people, you know, even someone like Tony Unero or, um, I mean, there's too many names to really mention, but these are the people in my mind that basically laid the foundation for what I'm doing now. Mm -hmm. And I think it was, I think to show them respect and also to kind of tell the community around me that it's worth it to me to go and do necessary evil or it's worth it to me to go and climb, you know, whatever it is, just do it or to bolt or not to be, or, you know, well beyond Smith and the VRG, many other things or Hasta La Vista at Charleston or whatever. I think that that to, for me, that was like where I felt I needed to start. And I saw, you know, and back then, you know, I didn't have really much money. So it was also easier to be in the United States and I wasn't, yeah. I was making no money from climbing or anything. So living in the truck and, and just kind of like eating whatever was, was easier to be here. Um, and also, you know, back then it wasn't 
you know, Chris Sharma was like living in Spain and, and there was like this Europe thing. And of course, like I, I was like, you know, I always dreamed of going to Seyus and all these other places, but it wasn't like idolized the same way, or it wasn't kind of like, um, as glamorous as it would seem now. And so to me, it was like important to lay the foundation here in the U S and amongst my peers. And, um, I always left that kind of international kind of globe trotting thing for later. And I think one thing that I've noticed about younger climbers now is they, you know, they train in the gym in Indianapolis or, you know, wherever it is and they get sick strong and then they go straight to like Oleana. Yeah, totally. (laughs) And and, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but I guess that like, you know, we were just talking earlier about, you know, even though we're in our thirties, we could be like getting old and scary. <laughs> yes. There's like a part of my soul that aches a little bit. Cause yes. I'm like, Oh man, you got to go to yeah. Southwest Utah and live in your like crappy old van and yeah. do all those freaking classics that Todd Perkins bolted 20 years ago. Like that's what you have to do first, you know, right. like that's where you start. And then like at the like somewhere down the line, you know what like keeps you motivated through all those rainy nights is, you know that insane cliff with those blue tufas in southern France. Yeah. But um, and and you know that's totally me like projecting and of and want other people to have the same experience that I had. But uh, for some reason that just seems valuable. Like even going to the China Cave and doing, um, uh, doing um those freaking old things from Dale Goddard and, and Boone speed. And like, I know that that crack kind of sucks, but I'm still just like, yeah. there's something about it that still just like has so much value and is like so important. So, um, so yeah, I hope that sentiment lives on. And I've been thinking a little bit about how to kind of encourage yes. that idea in younger people. Um, and it's tough. It's hard. I don't know like what the best option is. I think, yeah. I mean, that's such a, such a great point. I think um, to some extent, what you maybe bring t- that helped you to choose that particular path is, you know, an appreciation for the history that's come before you. And mm. I wonder to, you know, I, obviously as like somebody who's starting a show based on like climbing's community and the direction that the sport's heading. And I think about this stuff a lot, but I, I do wonder as, as climbing grows so fast and people's entry into the sport is, um, you know, they, they have a gym in their hometown and their friends go or they're on a youth team. Totally. You may, it just might be really easy for you to get around that. You know, when I, it's, it's so funny that you talk about, you know, watching kind of like not judgmentally, but like with some dismay as people kind of just skip all these steps that you so deliberately went and took. And in, you know, when I first got into climbing, I was, I grew up outside of Boston and I just like knew I wanted to be into climbing and but like I didn't know anybody who did it. There were no gyms. Like there was no, there was like nothing. Right. So I got a job in a gear shop and I bought all this like rent, like hexes and stoppers and stuff like that. And there's just like (laughs) slinging webbing, like 50 feet back from the top of a cliff and like really trying to like teach myself. I had to like beat the door down to get into the community. Right. And that, that really, um, that definitely brings you up against a lot of other things that you might not encounter. If, if you can just, if you like, if you see climbing in the Olympics and you're like, Oh, that looks cool. I want to try that. And so you look online and there's a gym four blocks away from your house. Yeah. You're then all of a sudden you're, you're going, you're off the runway like immediately. And that's, that's just so different the way way it is and the way it used to be. 
I don't know. Again, I don't know that it's worse necessarily, but it's sometimes occasionally it's hard to relate to. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And, and, you know, I've, I I have actually been giving this a lot of thought and I've had been having a similar conversation to this a lot recently. And I think one of the main differences is that the availability of gyms, like you've mentioned, the availability of, um, kind of, uh, training programs and just the ability to improve on your own is so easy. And I think that one of the primary differences was that it was basically impossible to climb 513 without having a mentor or without really sucking for a long time many years ago. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a humbling process to go to the cliff for the first time and get like super scared because you know, you didn't bring enough quick draws or, you know, like something, you know, it's just, it's just a scary, scary experience. And, and, um, and I think so a lot of us that are a little older, we went through this period of, you know, you couldn't look online and find a video for how to do X, Y, Z. It was like, you had had to do it. You, well, you had to either just do it or you had to find somebody that would put up with your annoying ass and <laughs> like beg them, like, you know, this dude at the, oh, I heard this guy climbs 12 C. Like I, I'm begging him to go check out this new area. And, you know, he finally takes you along and then he, you know, he or she gives you the information about, you know, here's how you socially respect one another yeah. when we're outside or whatever. And secondly, here's how you respect these places that we go and here's how you conduct yourself, you know, when you're outdoors. And then here's a set of values, like, you know, here's, here's a a set of values about, you know, how to best guide your climbing experience and and your future in climbing. And that person, he or she, you know, kind of like hands you this like golden, yeah. Uh, you know, this the like, amazing, the kingdom kind of thing. exactly. Yeah. And that was, that was like this really cool process. And, and, you know, we, and a lot of us, it, maybe we didn't have a mentor specifically, but we had a group of friends that we all kind of figured it out together and we yeah. all like made mistakes. And, and it seems now like, you know, I mean, you can be a five fourteen climber now and have never gone outside. And to me, that is just like, so crazy. To I know even, it totally to blows like, the mind. The elite and have no idea what it means to like, you know, go camping. Even just like the, the mentality of like the willingness to travel internationally for climbing, I feel like has really worked its way down towards the entry levels of the sport where, totally. you know, I would not, I would never, I mean, I've still not gone and sport climbed in, in Europe, partly because I'm like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm just not at that level yet. But that's a, that's a ridiculous self-imposed idea that a lot of newer climbers don't share. You know, I, I run into yeah. people now who are like, I'm, I'm going to Patagonia or I'm going to the Bugaboos. It's like, what are you talking about? You climb five, seven, you know, but they, yeah. you know, yeah. in my mind, like, I'm like, oh, well, I don't, you know, these are the routes that I want to do. And these are the peaks that I want to hit. So I got to be, you know, at X, Y, or Z level, but you know, there's, maybe that's not the right way to do it for everybody. You know, who, who yeah. used to say that it's wrong to be like, well, it's a bucket list item for me to go climb, you know, some five, five ridge line in the bugs. And so I'm just going to go do it. Like, I'm not going to wait, you know, I don't need your permission to go. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and, you know, again, like you mentioned, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, I think it might be a little bit of a different approach than we had. And, yeah, totally. Uh-huh. Like I would never have considered yeah. just flying to Thailand when I was first learning to sport climb to be like, no way. Go climb in Thailand. Or, or, or like, you know, I know plenty of people that are, you know, 
512 minus climbers who are making a two month vacation to Southern Spain or to Catalonia or something. And I'm like, Oh man, you know, there's like 20,000 routes of that grade that are just as high quality. They're within a six hour drive of your home. You know, it's amazing. What do you think drives that shift? I'm not sure. I think, you know, and again, like traveling has been a passion of mine for long before I ever started climbing. So I understand people's interest to go overseas. Um, but yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. I, I can't totally put my finger on it. Is it and, trite and, to you know, say that it, like Instagram and those types of things are, are implicated or do you think? I, I definitely think that that has something to do with it. You know, I mean, I mean, you know, the whole concept of social media is to kind of post, well, you know, for most people, the whole concept of social media is to kind of post the very best version of yourself. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly a lot more glamorous to talk about flying to XYZ area to climb and, you know, the awesome things you experience along the way as opposed to like kind of living in the dirt and climbing in the gunks in the rain or whatever it is, you know, yeah. that's like maybe like a little bit less desirable. Yeah. But, I, but you know, I think, I think what's an important kind of not necessarily conclusion, but an important piece of this conversation that we're having is that uh, like, and this is the part that I'm stuck on is I, I know I have all my opinions about and, and my, and my experience of feeling like mentorship is, is dwindling away and that, you know, there's kind of this value system that I'd really like to see this generation at least attempt to pass on. Yeah. And while we, we might not have the same ability to connect with the younger generation than we did before, just because of gyms and the internet and the ability for people to do things on their own, et cetera. But my question, like both to the listeners and to you is like, how can we be like, how, how can we do those things? Like, how can I, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot. Like I, I know that I have a following of people and I know that I can reach a certain number of people. And, um, I would love for it to be part of my experience or or rather part of my kind of climbing career, et cetera, to give some of these ideas to people, you know, who are coming up in the climbing gym and who are, you know, climbing incredibly hard, incredibly quickly and who want to, to, you know, basically just grow as climbers and maybe even become a professional climber or just do it like recreationally. But, um, right. You know, I mean, what's the best way to do it? And I've been kind of trying to think a little bit about that. And, um, you know, I think conducting myself in a certain manner and and sharing my opinion when I can is important, but I'm just, Mm -hmm. I'm also curious if you think there's other ways or if a listener thinks that there's like another great way to kind of just communicate that message. Yeah. I don't really know. I mean, it's hard to say it'd be, it would be easy to just like put, put the, uh, the onus on, on gyms and the indoor culture where, you know, where people are, whatever the realms are that people are learning and these days and stuff. But, you know, that may be unfair to gyms. You know, I think, um, one of the things that's so rad about climbing is that you share the arena. So like the places where the sport lives, you share them with the best climbers in the world 
today and you also share them with the best climbers who have ever come to those places and so yeah you know as opposed to like if you're a basketball player or you're a soccer player you know i'm never going to play on the same basketball court as a lebron james type but like right. i could run into you with a crag you know with with no prior planning and be like oh you know one route to the right of me you know is jonathan seeger's just working on some super hard futuristic project and you know the fact that we all share yeah. those same places is amazing i mean you know just going to yosemite and, you know, you're you're camped right underneath Midnight Lightning or, you know, right. you get to go yeah, and do totally. Astro Man or, you know, whatever it is. And um, you're climbing the same routes with the same holds as, you know, your John Backer and your, you know, totally. all those other people. And and that's something that's really special to climbing, I think, that people either take for granted or it goes slightly underappreciated. And, um, yeah. yeah, I don't know, man. What how do you like? How do you really cue people into that fact? I'm You know, I'm not. I'm not totally sure. It seems like some portion of climbers just become incredibly obsessed with history, but it doesn't really snag everyone. Yeah, yeah, totally. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with the second half of the conversation where they cover topics like the Don Wall and the role of mentorship in the climbing community. So make sure to subscribe and have a great week.